Good morning. If you have a Bible, if you could please turn to the book of Acts. We are continuing our series through the continuing Acts of Jesus, as we might call this book, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Today we have a, what I would say is probably an unpopular passage before us, but a passage that has much to teach us, or at least a passage we may find perplexing. This is the Word of God. It's on your screens, Acts 4, starting at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died And a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Let's pray. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised and worshiped. Lord, thank you that you love your church, not with a little love, but with an undying love, with a love that would even cause you to send your son for us. And thank you that you love us so much that you won't let us continue in our rebellion, but rather in your mercy, you bring us to yourself. We worship you this morning. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
want you to think about this morning a time you told a, a little white lie. We all know what a little white lie is. Um, a time where you bent the truth. Obviously, breaking the truth is a full-on lie, but I'm talking about just, you know, bending the truth. Um, maybe, maybe it was 94.6% accurate, but uh, there was that small amount of the truth that was creatively told. Let's put it like that. Our passage today gives us the story of one so-called little white lie. And it gives us a powerful window into what God thinks about sin, what he thinks about his church, and what he's done for us in Christ. Just three things this morning. A beautiful picture of the church. We see this in 32, verses 32 to 37 of chapter 4. An ugly reality, 5, 1 to 10, and a call to self-examination, the last verse of chapter 5. First of all, a beautiful picture. This is a beautiful picture of the church, isn't it? The beginning of chapter 4. It harks back to the description of the church that we were given in chapter 2. And uh, Luke says the believers were united in one heart and mind. And then we have this statement, which is even more astonishing, I think. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. United in one heart and mind. What does that mean? They were united in their love. These are folks who had experienced the saving grace of God in Christ. They had experienced the love of God in Christ, and they were united in that love. Coming from different backgrounds, having different interests, yet united under the love of God in Christ and a love that was flowing both upward and outward to each other and to their community. United in their purpose. It says the apostles were going around proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What is the purpose of the church? The church has a lot of smaller purposes, lowercase s purposes. But the larger purpose of the church is to glorify God by proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And the gospel is the news that not only has this man, Jesus of Nazareth, died on a cross, but he has rose again. And that's why uh, Luke can even use this description of resurrection. It's shorthand for him for the whole gospel. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord. Jesus had risen. So everything was different now. Everything had changed They were united around that purpose, and they were united around a common belief as well. United in heart and mind, proclaiming the resurrection, and also, we can't miss this, filled with love, compassion, and generosity. Again, no one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now, I kid you not when I say this. Um, People have looked at verse 32 historically, and um, they have said, see, the Bible argues for communism. I mean, look at, look, at what, well, look at what it says. No one claimed any of his possessions were his own, so there must be no private property. They shared everything they had. Therefore, the Bible must um, advocate this system of communism. Of course, you know I'm going to say that's not right. And this is just a reminder that every group that wants to use the Bible will use the Bible for their own purposes, right? I mean, if, if there, I'm sure that the United States Bowling Association probably has their favorite Bible verse. And along with any other group, because people want to take God's word and use it for their own ends. And that's why we need um, to be careful with the word of God. We need to go to trusted resources for the word of God. Of course, that's not what it means. So what does it mean? Well, scholars agree this is not a literal description. 
It's not as though the believers started, stopped um, having private property or stopped owning things. And it's not as though they literally shared everything that they had, but rather this is a description of radical generosity, radical love, radical compassion. They had mercy. We, we know they didn't get rid of private property because just later in verses 34, it talks about how on some occasions, some of the believers would sell a property. You see, the, rather, the, the verse 32, what, what we want to get is a picture where nobody's in need in the church. One person's persecuted. Hey, we're going to come alongside that person. We're going to take care of that person. Another person doesn't have enough food. We're going to take care of that person. Hey, um, another family in the church, uh, maybe the parents died and now there's orphans. We're going to take those kids in and we're going to take care of them because we're the family of God. See, the description here is one of when there's a need, somebody in the church is stepping up to meet that need. It's not as though they don't have possessions anymore, but rather they are filled with love, compassion, and kindness, even the kind of love and compassion that that leads them to acts of radical generosity, like selling a property. Um, Even uh, looking at this passage, what's neat is that the the actual verb that's used for selling the properties it's a gradual, it's a verb that implies a gradual liquidation of assets. All right. So in other words, the church of God is being generous. It's being kind. It's showing Jesus to the community by caring for those who are in need. And also it's radical generosity, but it's mixed with wise, thoughtful behavior. Generosity, kindness, love should always be mingled with with wise, wise actions. And so people are bringing the money, they're putting at the apostles' feet, needs are being met. And then we have this example of Barnabas. Yes, this is the same Barnabas who becomes Paul's wingman through the beginning of the book of Acts. Um, we have an example of him demonstrating this radical generosity by selling a field that he owns and bringing it to the apostles' feet. Now, um, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? We wish every church could be like that, but guess what? Um, the church of God isn't like that. There's going to be sin in the church of God. And if I can just say a, a pastoral word here, if you um, are consider GRC your home, if um, GRC is a place that, that uh, you feel like you're accepted here and that you, you stand by what we believe here and you stand by our teachings, and yet you're kind of saying, you know, but there's a couple things about GRC that I'm not sure about, including maybe that assistant pastor, okay, and some other things. But, okay, let that, let that aside. And maybe you say, I'm not sure about a few, of, a, a few things here. And, it's, but it's, and maybe it's causing you to, to not fully plug into our church. Can I say this? You won't find a perfect church. And as the saying goes, if you find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it. There is no perfect church. Isn't this humbling that even this church right after Pentecost is not a perfect church? Even though they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they're, they're motivated by the gospel, they're proclaiming the resurrection, they're filled with love and compassion and mercy, yet even then, sin remains in the body. It's an ugly reality that we see in this story of Ananias and Sapphira. The past year, um, Betts and I, we bought our first home. And if you saw our home within the first six months that we bought it, um, in the front yard, the landscaping was really overgrown and there was these two giant bushes. 
these giant round bushes. They were like little hot air balloons or something. And even just to go up the steps to our door, you almost kind of had to walk like this because they were coming in so far into the steps. And so Bets and I talked about, we said, we got to get rid of these bushes. So I got a chainsaw, you know, and, um, I took, I took those bushes down, and then later I said, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do now because um, i got to put something else in their place. But the point was there was overgrowth that was preventing the beauty of the home, um, the natural uh, beauty of the home to be seen because there was overgrowth. And so in order to appreciate this story of Ananias and Sapphira, we have to clear away the debris. We have to clear away the overgrowth and say what's unique about this story and what's normative about this story. Because it's very easy to read this story and think, come on, pastor, all they did was tell a little white lie. I mean, they still gave most of the money to the church. I mean, didn't Peter, or if we're really honest, God go a little overboard here? So let's clear away the debris and ask this question. First of all, what's unique about this story? It's a unique time in the life of the New Testament church. It's an embryonic stage. The, the church is in a fledgling uh, state right now. The a number of believers is still a small group. Um, even after Pentecost, it's still a relatively small group. The church doesn't own property, and they're persecuted. They're persecuted by the Jewish authorities who are telling them to stop preaching this message of Jesus as the Messiah, and they're persecuted by the Roman authorities in the sense the Romans just want peace. And they are more than happy to squash out any sect, any Jewish sect that is interfering with their peace, the peace of their empire. The nascent New Testament church is like an ember preparing to erupt into a flame, but it's still in a fledgling form. It's in an embryonic state of the church. And parents, you know this, you always care about the health and safety of your children, but you are especially careful when you have a newborn, right? When you have an infant, you are protecting that infant, you are watching that infant, you are making sure that little one is going to be okay. So God is protecting his young infant church here. It's also a unique example for the church then and now. Ananias and Sapphira couldn't have known this, the apostle Paul, I mean the apostle Peter couldn't have known this, But it was God's will that this story would be captured for our learning today and for the example of us today. It's an example of our sin and God's holiness. And that connects to the third thing about this that's unique. It's a unique look behind the curtain of of our sin and what it deserves. We all know the Wizard of Oz, right? You know, he goes to see the wizard and he pulls back the curtain. And what does he find? Wizard of Oz is not what he thought. So often in life, we we see our sin, okay? And we know our sin isn't pleasing to God, but we we, we dumb it down. We think our sin's not that big of a deal. Um, I don't see why God or even other people should be that concerned with it. But in our passage today, we have a unique um, pulling back of the curtain of what our sin deserves. Because, and look, I, I get that this can be hard to swallow, but the truth is that we deserve judgment for our sin. We, we deserve to be punished for our rebellion to God and his holiness and to his perfection. So what we have here is even a unique look into what our sin deserves. And we can praise God that through Christ, Psalm 103.10 is true. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our, our iniquity. 
That's what's unique about this passage. If God is going to discipline us, it's never going to appear on the pages of the Bible. But what can we say for certain about this passage? This is what we can say. This is a miracle from God. Peter is just the mouthpiece. Peter's not the agent. Um, This is God um, bringing down this discipline on Ananias and Sapphira. If we could do an autopsy on Ananias and Sapphira, I don't know if we would find heart failure, a stroke, something like that. God could have used the miraculous. He could have used a normal means. This was a miracle from God. Second, this shows us, and I know this is kind of hard for us all to see this, okay? but this shows us just how much God loves his church. All right. If there's a cancer in your body, the right thing to do is not to leave the cancer there, but rather it's to, um, even though it's painful, it's to remove the cancer from the body. Even though it may be hard for us to see this in this passage, this passage reflects the love of God for his church. That God desires that there would not be sin in his church, but that there would be holiness. And I'll give you um, an analogy to think of it. Uh, Imagine you're living in the mountains, all right, away from Bergen County. And and you're living with your family in the mountains, and you see a mountain lion. And you think, wow, that's that's scary, you know, looking out your window. And a couple days later, you hear a scratching at the door. You think, we don't have a dog. Um, You go look through the hole. There's a mountain lion outside your door. You're going to be terrified. And let's say a week later, there's even an attack on a member of your family and someone is hurt, but praise God, they survive. What are you going to do the next time you see that mountain lion? Well, if you don't own a gun, you're going to get one and uh, you're going to find out um, you're going to take care of business because you love your family. You love, uh, you'll do anything to protect them. God loves his church. And he will not let sin, especially public sin, bring cancer to his body. I want you to know, I really believe part of the reason that God has given this example is its public nature. Um, Because Ananias and Sapphira are not just lying to God, although that's of first and foremost importance, but they're also lying to each other. You say, you know what, Pastor, I don't see how this, how, how is this such a big sin? How could this have affected the church of God? Well, I'll give you um, just a few examples I could easily see. Imagine what would happen when a non-believing person hears about the Jesus movement, that Jesus is the Messiah, is interested in joining this fledgling church, and then speaks to the person that bought that property from Ananias and Sapphira, and they happen to learn how much that um, the property costs. And then they start meeting with some church members, and the church members say, wow, God's doing some amazing things. Do you know that someone donated all the proceeds from a sale of their property for the sake of the kingdom? And the person says, wait a second. These two, these two numbers don't add up. How, d- maybe the church is just like every other organization or so many other, I shouldn't say every, but so many other organizations where the leaders are taking something off the top. Or maybe... Ananias and Sapphira are taking something off the top. And so how much is Jesus, I mean, how much does he really change someone's life if they're going to live just like, just like we see everybody else in the world living? I could see a lot of ways that this sin could really hurt the church of God. God loves his church. And finally, God will not be mocked. 
most scholars agree on this. It says that in Galatians 6, 7. Most scholars agree that the amount of money that Ananias and Sapphira held back for themselves was probably a small amount. Because if you sell a property and you, let's say you keep 50% of the proceeds from that property, you're probably going to know that somebody savvy within the congregation or within the body is going to say, wait a second, that doesn't seem right. That property is worth way more than that. Um, we don't know that. It could have been 50%, but it's more likely it could have been something less. could have been 30%, 20%. could have been 10% of the sale. What do we learn? It's not about the money. God is not concerned about the money. It's not, it's not about the specific amount of money that Ananias and Sapphira withheld. It's that they are lying to God and lying to the church community and by doing so, impugning God in his glory. It's not about the money. It's about the heart behind the money. As I was studying this passage, uh, you know, obviously a question that comes to our minds is, were Ananias and Sapphira Christians? It's a great question to ask, right? And I think that they were. And I go on, verse 32 says, all the believers were of one heart and mind. And so Ananias and Sapphira are introduced under this larger heading of all the believers. I think that Luke gives us every reason to think that they are a part of, they're certainly a part of the church community, and we can probably assume that they're in Christ, or at least that they're part of the church community. If they're not, their motives are clear. Human praise, approval, admiration, maybe networking within the church. Maybe they want to get a building named after themselves or something like that, some kind of pride. But if they are believers, then we ask, how could this happen? And the answer is our own evil desires plus the influence of Satan led them to commit this sin. The New Testament is very clear. Believers cannot be controlled by Satan, cannot be filled um, with Satan or a demon. But believers can be influenced by Satan and his desire. Think about it like this. Satan doesn't make you sin, right? We, I hope we all reject the devil made me do it. I mean, come on. That's, let, we, we're smarter than that. But Satan... Um, but he can be an influence in the life of a believer. He's like that guy on the sideline egging you on to do something both stupid and evil. You know, do it, do it, do it, do it. You know, without trivializing Satan, who's very real, that's his role. It's to influence us. It's to, it's to point us to evil so that our own sinful inclinations will then go for that evil and grasp at that evil. And that's why we need to be in the word, praying, fellowshipping, being real with each other, so that it's the word of God is the voice in our, in our minds, not the voice of Satan. We can't do an, an autopsy on Ananias and Sapphira, obviously, and they couldn't um, do one then, like we do today at least. But let's do an autopsy of their sin. James, you have this on your screen, um, says this. Each one is tempted when by by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is James's formula. Temptation comes when our own evil desires, which entice us, lure us, lie to us, deceive us, make false promises to us, conceive of a sin in our hearts, and then we go ahead and we commit 
that actual sin. Without knowing exactly what was going on with Ananias and Sapphira, I can very easily see a scenario where something like where they said, hey, did you hear about Barnabas? It was an incredible act of generosity that he did. Um, we, could, we have a property we could sell. Yeah, we could. Um, then at some point down the road, you know, what if we just, what if we just kept a little for ourselves? You know, I mean, sure, just wouldn't, wouldn't be a big deal. We've got some other things we desire, maybe some other financial obligations. We shouldn't um, underestimate the ability of our own hearts, my heart included, to rationalize our own sin, right? To justify what we're doing and say that eh, it's actually not that big of a deal. It's not about the money, folks. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Peter says to, and in in Sapphira, he says, you didn't have to sell the field. And even after you sold the field, you still didn't have to give the money to the church. You still, it it was yours. So it wasn't about the money. Rather, it was about their hearts and about the orientation of their hearts and how their own sin led them um, to rationalize their behavior and ultimately to sin against God. Think about how easy it is, brothers and sisters, to um, be in a conversation and to justify your sin, to go on the computer, go on the Internet and justify your sin, to um, uh, be in a business um, situation and to rationalize, to rationalize our parenting, to rationalize so many things in our lives. And God desires that we get real with him. And we call sin, sin. We deal with it honestly as he desires so that we may be the people he wants us to be. That leads us to our last thing, a call to self-examination. It says in verse 11, great fear sees the whole church. I bet it did, right? I mean, just imagine if you were the young men and described in this passage, they carry one body out. Three hours later, there's another body to carry out. Um, you know, that's, that's not a fun day at work in, um, in the life of the church. Great fear seized the church. And I'm sure that it did. I'm sure that that caused a lot of, uh, hey, we've got to do some soul searching here. We've got to look at our own lives. And the call to us today is the same. A call to self-examination. And the first thing we should ask ourselves is, are we honest about our sin and what's needed to fight it? We, we, you know, we've all heard this a million times, but it's true. The first step is to admit your sin. It's to see your sin. It's to admit a hurt habit or hang-up, as Celebrate Recovery says, and get honest with God and with yourself. Are we honest about our sin? Are we honest about what's needed to fight it? As Christians, we shouldn't forget this. We have the added um, benefit of God himself abiding in us through his Holy Spirit as we pray to God, Lord, show me. Show me where I'm not being faithful to you. Show me where I'm hanging on. Show me where I'm hanging on to control, where I'm, I'm hanging on to fear, where I'm hanging on to ambition, where I'm hanging on to something that's just not, it's not according to your will, Lord God. Show me that so that I can be honest with my sin. There's a great quote I want to read you. It's by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Um, it should come up on your screen. 
Uh, she says this, brilliant lady, has a couple great books I would recommend. She says this about fighting sin. Don't make a false peace. Don't make excuses. Don't get sentimental about sin. Don't play the victim. Don't live by excuse righteousness. If you bring a baby tiger into your house and name it Fluffy, don't be surprised if you wake up one day and Fluffy's eating you alive. That's how sin works. And Fluffy knows her job. Sometimes sin lurks and festers for decades, deceiving the sinner that he really has it all under control until it unleashes itself on everything you built, cherished, and loved. The question for all of us, starting with me, for all of us is, we're the fluffies walking around in the corridors of our hearts. Um, that uh, we're kind of patting, patting Fluffy on the head, uh, and maybe we don't want to admit Fluffy's 100 pounds bigger. <laughs> and the, she's eating a lot more meat than she used to. Interesting parallel example. Um, the Florida Everglades have actu- actually become um, over, overrun with um, Burmese pythons. And the reason for this is you buy a Burmese, Burmese python, it's about this big. A Burmese python can get to be 20 feet long, 200 pounds. At some point, as a pet owner, you just can't handle that anymore. So you let that animal go. It's what happened to a lot of people, let the animals go in that Florida Everglades. So often with sin, that's how we view our sin, right? Oh, it's just this small. It's not a big deal. Um, That's not how God views it. And that's not for our best either. And that's why God has given us an old-fashioned word. We don't talk about it a lot in society at least, to fight our sin. And that's a word called repentance. Repentance means to turn and go the other way. It's not merely feelings of guilt, although your feelings will be involved. It is a desire flowing from your heart, flowing from your will to turn your life around in another area. And it's directed to God, and it's knowing that God has to give you the grace to do it. If you really want to change, it's got to come through the power of God. The repentant person says to God, God, you've got to change me because I've tried to change myself, and it doesn't, it doesn't work too well. Grant me the grace to stop making excuses, to not downplay my sin, to be honest about my life. Help, whether that's other people involved in my life, being in your word, being in prayer, help me to be honest. Finally, um, one last note, the judgment we deserve. Where are Ananias and Sapphira right now? Well, I don't know this for sure, but my strong guess is that they are around the throne of God worshiping, worshiping the Lord. And that what we have here is an instance of God's discipline of his children, severe discipline. But if Ananias and Sapphira are around the throne worshiping God, uh, they're not lamenting the fact that they got a few less years on planet Earth. Um, Rather, they are in the presence of God, um, full of joy and full of the knowledge that their sin has been forgiven through the work of Jesus. What's shocking about this story? Um, We all read it, myself included. We read this story and we think, that's just crazy. It just seems so out of proportion. It It just doesn't seem right. They told a lie. They lost their lives. But what's truly shocking about this story is that Jesus has taken that judgment on himself. The judgment that we deserve, the judgment that Ananias and Sapphira deserve, not just, um, you know, they experienced 
judgment in this life or a discipline in this life, but the ultimate judgment that we deserve for our sin is separation from God. But what's truly amazing about this passage is it reminds us that Jesus has paid for that. The suddenness of this passage and the shocking nature of this passage, may God use it to have us reflect on on the cross and on the resurrection and that on the cross, that's what Jesus died for. He didn't just die for sins that, yeah, God will get around to punishing them sometime. He, desi- he, de- he died for sins that deserve to be punished now because they're displeasing in, in our lives. He died for our little white lies. He died for those things in the darkest part of your heart or in your past. He died for those. He took that judgment on for you. That's why we can sing with the, say with the hymn writer, guilty, vile, helpless, we spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a savior. He died for us. He paid for our sin. If you don't know that, as we come to the table, we want you to know that. We want you to know the power of that, that the judgment you deserve Christ took it on. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for your your life, Lord God, that even as we have an instance of immediate consequences for sin, that you took those consequences for us on the cross so that we might live a new life for the glory of your name. Help us to do that, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.